Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Ray Finkel. Laces out, Dan. Let's dim the lights and kick off the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Monet's Cafe, where a cup of hot cocoa will fix all that is wrong in the world. Welcome to The Pestle. This is Wes. And Todd. And this is a show where we like to break down films and discuss it in, in detail. And the reason why we call this the pestle is a reference to a mortar and pestle. Like whenever you're cooking, you might grind up you know, some corn to make corn flour or wheat, I suppose. I wouldn't know. <laughs> wheat? Who has unground wheat just in their kitchen? <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know how Go you grab the but, wheat, Todd. Yeah, because we're, we're in 1836. <laughs> I literally wouldn't know what to do with like a bale of wheat. <laughs> wheat. Oh man. Would not go well. And so with that idea, we like to take a film and grind it up and try to see what it's made of. Um, today we're going to be doing Garden State. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. I think it may or may not be worth your time depending on the kind of person you are. Yeah, I think it's very dependent on <laughs> yeah. that. Um, but we will definitely be giving you spoilers all throughout. So if that's going to bother you, then... Take a pause. Yeah, and go watch it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be covering all kinds of things, the camera work, talk about some of the editing, the visual gags. Uh, that's all throughout the film. And we'll touch on when performances save or make a film. And then we'll probably talk about some of the impact that this had on us personally. I'll definitely be coming from my point of view and how this really did change my life. And a not-so-dramatic way, but it definitely affected the path that I was on. I'm looking forward to that. It should be boring. <laughs> <laughs> nah, nothing that changes a life is going to be boring. I agree That's with that. It's pretty exciting. I agree with that. Yeah. All right, so let's give a quick synopsis of the film. Uh, a quietly troubled young man returns home for his mother's funeral after being estranged from his family for a decade. It's written and directed by Zach Braff, starring Zach Braff as Andrew Largeman, Natalie Portman as Sam, Peter... Uh, Sarsgaard as Mark uh, and it's also starring Ian Holm, Sean Smart, Ron Liebman, Ann Dowd and Method Man. Hey man, what's up? Holy shit! How's it going? I, I haven't seen you since like junior year. Yeah. I thought you killed yourself. What? I thought you killed yourself. That wasn't you? No, no, that, that wasn't me. Who killed themselves? I was a Gleason kid. Oh. oh, and Tina. Tina who? You remember Tina. She's anorexic, did gymnastics. Oh, gymnastics, Tina? How'd she do it? I don't know. She wasn't Jewish. I didn't bury her. I think it was sleeping pills. Or that car in the garage thing. I forgot. Oh, sorry. This is uh, Sam, Carl, Carl, Sam. Hey. I gotta go find that thing. Uh, you two stay here. I'll be right back. Is it, is it heavy or? Okay. Hey, weren't you on a TV show or something? Yeah, it was just this, just a show. So, um, you're like working here? That's cool. Only for a little while. I'm opening my own business. Actually, I should talk to you about it. I'm looking for smart people like you, Large. I should get your number. Yeah, definitely. That'd be, that'd be cool. I'd like to talk to you both about a good opportunity for you and your loved ones. We all have dreams. I know I do. I'd like to talk to you about an exciting opportunity that people are talking about. 
We gotta get going. Oh, okay. It was good to see you, Carl. Hey, I should get your number. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'll call you because I think he has it in his book. Nice to meet you. <laughs> that guy kills me. <laughs> it's a perfect, perfect casting for that role. He winds into his pitch that he's been just rehearsing. <laughs> so good. But there, there's a lot of little subtle bunnies in that scene. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, there's a couple scenes I wanted that I couldn't find online, and I just didn't have time to, to grab it off of my own DVD. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that scene does kind of typify a lot of the things that this film is doing. It's got dark subject matter, right? Someone killed themselves, and uh, they're kind of making these punchlines about it. Like, they're not taking it overly serious, which is one of Largeman's problems, um, is his ability to connect with, you know, death and reality. Mm-hmm. And then just the quirky character traits that come out. I feel like that all, all the best writing in this film really comes out of that, out of his ability to create these characters and find the right people to fill those roles. <laughs> yeah. I, and I, I feel like the, um, uh, like all the, all the little, the little, there are probably like three or four little funny moments in there that are like very quick. Yeah. You know, when, when Sarsgaard, uh, walks away to go get something and Zach Braff says, is it heavy? <laughs> like basically like, do you need me to help you? Can I please go with you? And then, the, and then if you're watching the actual clip, there's a moment where, so Natalie Portman and, and, and Zach Braff have a, they have like this signal when, if it's, when she, if she wants to leave, she pulls on her, on her ear and that's his, that's the signal. Let's get out of here. I want to leave. And she like yanks on her ear one little moment when he talks to her, <laughs> like, I want to get out of here. And how did you take his response to that? Do you think he just kind of forgotten that that was a signal? It's, you know, a day or two has passed and it's not really top of mind anymore. Do you feel like he just forgot or he's like, eh, whatever. <laughs> no, I, Cause he kind of brushes it off. I think he just didn't know how to get out of it himself. Uh, you oh, know? that's true. Yeah. He was stuck. <laughs> he was stuck too. It's like, I don't really know uh, what to do. Um, as, as much as you do. So yeah. we're just kind of stuck until, uh, you know, um, Peter comes back or Mark comes back. So, what drew you to this film? I know you was telling me uh, last night about it that you'd probably seen it once before, but it wasn't until like a year or two later or even more before it really started resonating with you to the point where it had an important place in your mind. Like it was connected mm-hmm. to actual important things in your life. Yeah. I, uh, so I used to live in LA and I saw this film, uh, uh pretty close to when it came out, I, I feel like, but I didn't, didn't see it in the theater. So it was probably like a year after it came out. It came out in 04. Uh, so, um, and when I saw it, I, I, the first, my first thinking was, cause I was, I mean, I was in LA for music. Mm. I was doing music. My first thinking was, Oh my God, the soundtrack is the greatest true thing ever. It is so good. And they only use little moments of the song as transition from one scene to another. That's, that's it. Like the actual scenes, un- unless it's a montage or not really montage, unless it's like a, they're exploring the space or exploring, you know, where you are uh, in this moment, um, without dialogue on it or as a transition from that, 
scene into another scene. So you're only getting like little sections of these songs, but it's the perfect moments of those songs. And so I, I, I really was just drawn to the, the soundtrack. And then a roommate of mine had this CD. Yes. The CDs at the time I know <laughs> had the CD, uh, by an artist called, uh, Nick Drake. And I'd never heard of him before. I, so I just saw the cover art and I thought, that's pretty cool. It was, it was his pink moon record. And so I, I put it on and I listened to it and it took, completely blew me away. And it was just a, a little acoustic record. It's just him and his acoustic wow. and it completely blew me away. And then I got to, I realized that one of his songs was in garden state, right? Um, not from that record, from a different record, but it was in there. So I just fell in love with him and it was I was listening to that record for about a year before I realized that it was an old record. I didn't know Nick Drake was an older artist. He was in like the seventies. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. But you listen to this record and because it's not overly produced, it feels like it's was made last month or something, you know, it just feels very modern. Um, so I fell in love with it and then I didn't see the movie again for several years and I started dating. It was only after I started dating my wife. Well, what would have been, what was going to become my wife that we, I watched it again with her because it was one of her favorite movies. And I thought, Oh, I think I've seen that movie before. Yeah. Yeah. And so we watched it together. It was one of the first movies we watched together and we were both at the time pretty sad people and, you know, trying to get over whatever, you know, baggage we had carried with us into this relationship. Right. And still, and that at this point in our relationship, still, you know, discovering things about each other and like, you know, figuring out, is this right? Is this going to work? You know, should we make an effort, which is very along the lines of, of some aspects of the film. And so we just kind of bonded over it. And so that soundtrack, anytime I hear any of the songs from the soundtrack now, all I can do is think of my wife and the, those times of like, of the, being really excited about, you know, getting to see her again and, or, or like, you know, just longing to be with her when I'm not, you know, and, and, uh, so it, it holds that place. So anytime I watch the film or I hear even the, the, the name of the film or any of the music from the film, I'm brought back to that first year of the relationship of my wife and I. That's wow. great. It's great. That's awesome. I feel like that's one of the amazing things about art, uh, specifically music and film is how it can connect you with the period like nothing else, because what's great about, you know, what we can do now with music and film, um, and storytelling is what you heard, you know, 10 years ago is the exact same thing you can hear today. You don't have to settle for a rendition or a memory. You can actually hear the actual thing, which, you know, a hundred years ago, not necessarily possible. Yeah. Um, certainly not common. Yeah. And that's just really incredible to me, you know, the impact that artists can have on people for sure. And in this one, I loved it. I mean, I would say definitely from the first viewing, I didn't know it though. At the time, I wasn't living in Austin. I was uh, back home. I was actually going into full time ministry mm-hmm. once upon a time. And at the time, I. I just decided that, oh, you know what? I'm not actually going to go do this. And so I was just kind of biding my time to make it back to Austin. I had a few more months before I moved back. And I 
I mean, knowing me, this won't surprise you or anyone who listens that I would rent movies all the time. This is also the time not only of CDs, but of Blockbuster. <laughs> oh, wow. Now we're <laughs> really dating ourselves. Yeah. And so I would walk through Blockbuster and that was kind of the worst thing. We do it now from the comfort of our home. But back in the day, you would just wander like a zombie through Blockbuster trying to figure out all these choices. What am I going to watch? Which and in some ways I miss. I do too. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> the displays kind of gave you the level of importance of any given yeah. film. Um, but it was also cool that you could go talk to the dude behind the counter and be like, Hey man, I'm, I'm wanting something that I haven't seen before. And they'd recommend it or they'd look at what you're renting and say, Oh, you should watch this other thing too. You'd probably really dig that based on what I'm seeing for yeah. me right now. Um, so you had like these personal curators, uh, because they got to rent, you know, movies infinitely. And so I would walk through and I'd seen it for about a week. The display of garden state was up and finally, and I hadn't heard anything about it. Um, I just grabbed it and I was like, screw it. I'll watch it. Went home, watched it, fell asleep thinking about it. I was like, man, I really enjoyed that. I'm, I'm not an easy win in that way. I'm never going to say I loved something, you know, on first viewing and really mean it. I might say it, you know, in the spirit of talking about a film, like, yeah, I really loved it, you know, but in my heart, I won't really be loving it. And I remember waking up the next day and I was still thinking about it. And I went to the next room. And I was like talking to my mom, uh, who's also a, a movie lover. And I was like, mom, I watched this movie last night and I, I think I loved it. <laughs> and so the next day I came home, I still had it. I bought it, the uh, soundtrack the next day, took it back, you know, a day later I watched it again the next night uh, with my mom. Then I watched it again that night with the commentary on and then bought it the next day so that I could continue watching it. I think I watched it between 10 and 14 times that first week, literally. Wow. Yeah. I was watching it every day. I'm, I can <laughs> That's be a lot even for you. Yeah, even for me, that's yeah. definitely pushing it. I've never done that before. Damn. I was blown away f- by it because up to this point, I was a writer. I didn't think of myself as an actor or a filmmaker. I just started learning video editing, and that was about as far into behind the camera as I had gotten. Um, I considered myself a writer. I thought that's where all the creativity was in storytelling and films is the guy who creates the story is ultimately the the god, right? Like mm-hmm. you're the you're the real brains behind it. And now you know better. (laughs) This isn't like supposed to be a backhanded compliment to Zach Braff, but I watched this film and I was just kind of struck by its lack of architecture. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say anything (laughs) (laughs) because there's no structure. There's no real three act structure to this thing. Um, He's just kind of giving you moment after moment and it's, it, it has a path. Uh, but at the same time, it's not, it, you're really hard pressed to say there's a theme here. There's a theme of, I guess, wandering, <laughs> like yeah. we're constantly wandering through the film and we don't know when a connection is going to be made. And, and so it's kind of emblematic of life itself, but it certainly, as far as writing goes, I wouldn't say that it, it deserves any, you know, special attention. Instead, what I thought really made this film was the casting. And I'm going to get back to giving Zach Braff a whole hell of a lot of props because as a director, you still get credit for all this. Mm -hmm. Um, But the casting and the performances just made me realize like, holy crap, these guys, 
this whole cast, Gene Smart, Ian Holm, uh, Zach Braff, Natalie Portman, Sarsgaard, all these talented actors got to create so much depth in these characters because the story wasn't really there. It was just characters itself, and they brought all this life to it, and it just, to me, was screaming off the page. And I was like, okay, you know what? I now want to just see if I like acting. And so when I got back to Austin a few months later, that was one of the first things I did was enroll in an acting class. And I was like, I'm just going to do it until I don't enjoy it anymore. Or if I don't enjoy this first one, I that'll be that. You know, I'll go back to writing. Yeah. And obviously I enjoyed the first one and I was like, okay, that was interesting. And it was really terrible because in this class, Marco Perella is a pretty well-known acting coach here in town. And he would record you. So on like VHS tapes, which oh, dear God. even at this point was still non flattering dated. No yeah. man. And so I took that first class immediately went home and watched myself. And I was like, Jesus, boy, <laughs> you don't need to be doing this. Yeah. But I love the process. I wasn't concerned too much about how I looked. I was like, you know what? At the end of the day, you can always get better. It doesn't mean you're ever going to like the way you look on camera or that it's always going to be a, a comfortable thing, but you can get better at this. And more importantly, you're enjoying yourself. And so yeah. that ultimately led to me being a filmmaker because it wasn't until I was after so many classes, I was like, you know what? I'm enjoying this enough. I'll get headshots and I'll submit. And if I book stuff, then I'll just keep doing this. And I booked, you know, my first several auditions in student films. Um, I think I booked like my first three or four auditions and I was like, oh, this is really easy. I mean, it's not, <laughs> it's not <laughs> but, but I yeah. guess competing in, you know, for student films is a little easier Yeah, and had just so much fun, you know, working on set and creating. And, but after, you know, years of doing that, I think seven or eight years and getting an agent and just being really unhappy with the quality of projects, that's what ultimately led to me being a filmmaker. It's like, man, if it's going to happen, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to make it. Yep. Yeah. So I would, I would say that's pretty life changing. Mm, I think so. <laughs> it's all I do with my life now. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe Thanks. too much. So my identity may be too wrapped up in being a filmmaker. One could certainly argue, but for better and worse, I'm a, this yeah. is what's in my bones. Yeah, man. It's what I got to do. Thank you, Zach Braff. For, yeah, bringing that out of you. for sure. And the other funny thing that it, I think like the last several weeks, I've told you this the last several weeks I've discovered that, that Comedy Central plays Scrubs in the morning. Yeah. Reruns of Scrubs in the morning. And I always kind of thought that show was funny and I always kind of liked it, but it's super, super, because I used to watch Scrubs the same, around the same time that I was watching or that Jenny and I were started getting together. So yeah. So like any... Zach Braff just has this like way of drawing me in, man, like That's nostalgia awesome. wise, you know? <laughs> so I've just been every, in the mornings been watching an episode or two of, of Scrubs too. And so when we were talking about doing Garden State, I was like, yes, let's do it. <laughs> and so when we were watching it, there's complete moments of Scrubs in mm-hmm. from the camera wipes to the reveals, to his, the way he acts and sometimes. Like, I mean, he's a very different character than he is right. in Scrubs. But not completely. <laughs> <laughs> he's still he's still a little goofy at yeah. times. Uh, and that slips out a couple of times. And it's endearing. <laughs> right. It's endearing, you know. Absolutely. But, and it's funny. I, I didn't watch Scrubs. I knew about it, but I didn't watch Scrubs at the time of watching Garden State. So mm-hmm. I didn't really yeah. have any reference to, yeah. Yeah. Um, to me. 
oh, he's just a really sad person. And yeah. that's all I know about him. And then later after this, I started watching Scrubs and I was like, oh, my God. So you brought up an uh, interesting point that I kind of want to go back to a little bit about the the writing, you know, not necessarily being anything to, you know, write home about. Yeah. Um, does it seem to you as a writer that that, that was purposeful in order to allow the actors to give it life. Now, and I only say that because it's really easy to overwrite. True. Right. And if you have really good actors, you know, they can either make up for that or they can overact the over, the overwrite. So uh, it, it makes me think because, because you know, Zach Braff can write, he writes scrubs and, there's a lot of funny stuff in Scrubs and there's a lot of stuff like there's a lot of great ideas in Scrubs. Um, so, you know, you can write and there's nothing in, th- in there in the dialogue or anything. that's like really like, like, whoa, that was amazing. But did there need to be, you know, like there were these moments like Natalie Portman doing the one unique thing in that one space, you know, allowing her to have that, like, you know, to develop that or something or that interaction between them in the bathtub. And we'll go talk about the editing too, mm-hmm. you know, cause you have an interesting point about the scene in the bathtub, but you know, there, these moments of, of saying, here's basically the, the skeleton, the gist, but I want you to create the scene a little bit more. Do you think that that was a reason? That's entirely possible. I think, and I, this is something I would relate to a whole lot right now. Maybe it had more to do with I just want to write a script that I can be in and all I focused on is making good scenes and I'm just going to connect a bunch of really good scenes and that'll be my story because that's a that's effectively what he did. Right. And I want to say there's even a quote I read forever ago. Uh, at the time when this came out, he used to have a blog online that I would read, you know, and check for updates. And that was one of the things he would say is, you know, I just wanted to write a scene that you never wanted to end. And I would end it just before that point um, of you being satisfied with it. And that kind of leaves you wanting more. And I think I think there's a lot to what, you know, you're suggesting you're throwing out there that he wanted to create a lot of space for performances and just hearing the I haven't listened to the the commentary like in twelve years or whatever, so my memory may be a little spotty, but it sounded like he was very he's I felt connected with him on a directing level because he knows how to coax a performance out or he knows I want a specific look and we're gonna kinda keep running through this moment until I feel like I got that look. Uh, there's a that moment on the porch when they're about to go into Sam's house and he's like, you know, let's go inside. And, you know, he's mm-hmm. done debating. He's like, no, I want to hang out with you. Don't stop sweating it, you know. And she gives this kind of grin to him as she goes to the door. And I think they ran that like 20 times. Like he's like, no, nope, cuter. You know, I went and it's a hard thing as a director to try to coax something like that out because you don't want to give what's called the line reading where you tell them exactly how you want them to sound or you give them the exact expression you want them to use 
you want them to organically find that within themselves so that it's rooted in their character and it's rooted in their own personality and it doesn't feel fake or contrived. Uh, and it's a dance. It's a real dance because whether I'm doing a short film or working with non-actors, right, you're constantly dancing around trying to get that performance. And you know this. I mean, you've produced more than your fair share of uh, corporate videos when you're trying to interview someone and you're like, I didn't get it yet. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't tell them that. You can't, you know, frustrate the situation. And it felt like he really has a great grasp on that. And there's another moment when they're at the uh, the graveyard after his mom's been married, they go back again and they're all sitting around him and one of his buddies and he's watching Mark bury someone else and loot the body. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. That's, and there's this realization and the, the audio begins to drown out as slow motion kicks in and it's dawning on Largeman that he probably took my mom's stuff too. Like there's this realization he's stealing from her, this person and they exchange this look and there is just this micro micro expression that comes across Mark's face that they had to work, you know, quite a long time to try to get. And to, to Peter Sarsgaard, he's like, I didn't even feel it. I don't even know what he saw, what he felt. And I know that feeling for sure. I've worked on projects where I hear something, someone do something one time and I'm like, this is what it's doing for me. And I, spend 15 minutes trying to get this tiniest little thing because you become obsessed with it. Like mm -hmm. you gave me something unfortunately for you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and now I want it. Yeah. Um, and so I think the writing was a large attempt at creating interesting characters and having worked on scrubs and taking so many acting classes around town. And I know that feeling of, I have all this talent around me that they need to be in a film and I'm going to write parts for them or I'm going to write all the, an interesting character and hope that I can get endowed, you know, yeah. <laughs> like the lineup is just incredible for a first time writer director, uh, that he had no right to land some of these people and to have Avi Kaufman doing his casting. Like it's incredible. And so he did so many things right as a director because he agreed to these castings, right? He agreed to, yes, let's get Peter Sarsgaard. Let's, let's get these bit players, you know, that's going to play Kenny the cop, uh, which was a guy from one of his acting classes who comes in and maybe my favorite scene in the movie. And I probably have like four of those scenes where I'll say that, <laughs> but he comes on awesome. and he just is just full of character. And he was a big part of me wanting to be an actor, honestly. Yeah, so that all comes down to being a director and knowing, like, this is the soundtrack that I want. And like you said, I mean, it's glue. It is. And oh, man. In, in a lot of ways, it's standing in for, for lines and dialogue because of how powerful it transitions those moments. Um, whether it's Coldplay at the front, right, and you have you feel his melancholy and the the weight that he's under, even if he's numb to it all. Or if it's you know, Colin Hay and he's feeling euphoric, you know, yeah. it's all standing in for the emotion that can be really tough to communicate in dialogue or visually. And he just beautifully blends it in, in a masterful way. And so he rightfully got, you know, a Grammy. <laughs> yeah. He yeah. won a Grammy for best soundtrack. 
Like, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and so. Dang, good for you, man. He gets to announce himself as Grammy Award winning Zach Braff. <laughs> oh, man. Slap in the face <laughs> a little bit. Just going to say. Oh. And so. That's great, though. Yeah, I think it is. I think you can say a lot for the editing, too. Um, yeah. So you were mentioning that scene in the in the bathtub. Yeah. So in the soundtrack. And so I had to check the homework here because I want to say in the uh, the commentary, he's making a comment of the the editing in that scene, because if you if you pay attention to it, like really closely, there's some continuity issues of where Sam is in the tub. When you start the scene, she's in the middle. Yeah. And then it cuts to her in the yeah, to the right. She's yeah. in the leaning back, right? Yeah. Um what ended up happening was the editor was like, This scene isn't really working. Here's how I think we can trim a few minutes. And in the commentary, Zach Braff says that it was like twenty pages of dialogue. And I think he was just exaggerating or I'm just misremembering it. Because I pulled up the script and I read through that scene and it's really more of like five pages, but they cut it down to just under three. And that's really, that's so very, very tricky. You know, in that kind of scene, there's a very strong emotional moments that are happening and you want to hit those highlights without losing into the momentum that you've built up to that point. Cause yeah, I want to say that's right after the fireplace scene. Yeah. It's right. Is after. that right? Mm-hmm. And they just had this conversation about, uh, we, you're in it. Like you're telling yeah, the story. Why his mom. mom was in a wheelchair. Yeah. yeah. And so it was important to maintain some of that momentum and, and not force it. And I read in the dialogue, I think some of it's really beautiful, but some of it may have been a little thick. Like we get it. He, he was already effective in communicating how he felt and, uh, the, the implications of everything that had happened. You could feel it weighing on him already. You didn't need to re dive into that right after the fact you just did that. And so yeah. I think the editor probably picked up on that and he's like, okay, how can we trim this down to give Sam a little more room to impact her, uh, emotional character mm-hmm. onto him and build their bond a little stronger and still not lose the importance of what he's dealing with. And so the editor trimmed that trimmed two pages, three pages out of that to, to do just that. And there's also another scene where it was out of sequence, the scene where the the dad surprises them at the refrigerator mm, in, in the yeah. kitchen. That was originally supposed to be towards the end of the film. Because if you listen to the dialogue, he says, yeah, I'm leaving tomorrow. But he doesn't leave for another two days. And at the time of watching it, you might think, oh, he just decided to stick around an extra day for her. Which is still good. That's still like effective storytelling. Even though that's not literally the way it was written. And so, and I, I thought that too when I was watching it. I thought, man, this is a long day. Right. <laughs> wow. And so that was a perfect moment to bridge, uh, like the party sequence with, I forget what what happens right after that. I think it might be the graveyard scene, but it, tonally it made sense. More importantly, to not interrupt what's happening on that last day. Because there's there's this other momentum. Because then what you would have effectively had is scene in the kitchen and then the scene in the uh, Mark's room talking about you know desert storm trading cards. And so tonally it made more sense in a different place. 
and rhythmically in a lot of ways. And there's so much, I think, really good editing happening, even though we'll talk about camera work in a, in a minute. But at the end of the film, there's this triple cut that I remember Zach Braff pointing out at the time. And he's like, there's this beautiful triple cut that's going to happen right when he, he's pulled her back out. They're in, they're right alongside the luggage uh, cart. And he's saying, I'm going to stay. That that idea is dumb. Uh, I'm going to say, is that okay? Yeah, okay, okay. And so there's this very fast cut on each of their lines um, that happens that builds so much energy and excitement of what they're feeling in that moment. And it's completely communicated through the edit itself. That's amazing mm -hmm. to recognize that momentum. But I think it also comes out of the style of editing that was chosen for this film was I think more of a comedic editing because they, they do what's called Mickey mousing. And I've probably referred to this before in music video edits where you edit to the beat all the time. That's really exhausting. Like you don't want to edit always to the beat. If you can find another rhythm to either add to the rhythm of the beat with a visual edit, or if you can find visual cues to edit to, uh, with the action of your characters itself, that is really useful. But if you do that all the time, it gets so exhausting. But it works really well in comedy because there's a poppiness to it that plays into the rhythm of comedy. Comedy is rhythm itself. And it can still be exhausting, though. And what they do that I found really interesting is that monotony, that visual monotony of pop, 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 pop is interrupted with these really long takes and these really slow push-ins. So whether we're talking about those crane moves where like the first crane shot, I think is they descend into the funeral when he arrives. And that also gives you a feeling of his flying in. Right. Um, Cause he just, I don't remember if we actually see him on the plane or not, but we hear it. Mm. So we're landing with him into this moment. It's a really effective use of a crane shot. And then the cool thing I, I didn't notice until this past viewing, and I've probably seen this movie 50, 60 times, is I think the next crane shot we really see is pulling out of the, uh, the hamster funeral. And so it's kind of a bookend in and of itself. I don't know if that was necessarily intentional, wow. but that's how they reverse out of that scene. Mm -hmm. um, it was just really appropriate that it also happened to be at a funeral. Um, tied in by the amazing soundtrack. Yeah. And so they have so many of these great crane shots. The, uh, the pool shot is freaking beautiful. They have like this hundred foot crane that's hovering over the pool and yeah, she yeah. swims over to him and it just slowly makes its way as they're having this dialogue, which I don't know if they're capturing it there or if it's like dubbed in later, but that's a beautiful shot that's immediately followed by another really slow. It's a crane shot too. It's just not as obvious because it looks, it functions more as a dolly shot, but you can't put a dolly on the water. <laughs> yeah. And they're just dollying over or uh, craning over this pool as they're having this really long talk about the idea of home. I think it's beautiful because it's doing a number of things. One, anytime you have a long take like that, it's, it's pulling the audience, the viewer into the moment and, when you have these long uncut moments, you're listening, you're a little bit more in tune with everything that's happening on the screen. But I think too, in this particular case, discussing home in the way that he's doing, 
is is beautiful with this decision because it's like you're on this journey, like a road trip, and home is in sight, and you just kind of pull up in front of the house, mm, mm-hmm. and that's when she lays her head on her shoulder, and I love that so much because she takes a good 15 seconds between his final line and her next line. Yeah, she really takes her time takes to her time. chew on it, and 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 the moment right before she swims over to him. Uh, where he's because he can't swim right right so everybody jumps in the water and he doesn't and she and she said well can't you swim and then the and then they cut immediately to him just like <laughs> it's very scrubs like just kind of you know i don't even know what it's not even doggy paddling it's, yeah. it's just it's fantastic it's his attempt at and, what he thinks people look like when they swim yes <laughs> yeah exactly and uh you know, everybody else kind of dismisses it and is like, you're weird. But she has this, this like moment of just, she loves him, you know, that might've been the moment she fell in love with him right there. Cause she, the look on her face went, didn't go to serious. Yeah. It just went to, and this is such a lesson in acting because it could have easily gone to serious, but it, it wasn't, it was just a, he needs me. I'm going to go to him you know, kind of thing. Well, everybody else turns around and is yeah. playing or whatever. Um, and then, and then she swims over to him and they have that long moment. Totally. And what, yeah. and it's great because you really to like reiterate or enunciate your, your thought is that crane shot shows you, you get such a great physical geometry of what's happening in that moment. Because like you said, everyone is at one end of the pool, including her. She's making her way over to him. Mm-hmm. And if you're at a party and you're with a guy or a girl and you walk away and they make their way to you, yeah, that's a good sign. That's a good sign. You're feeling good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that Largeman's ever feeling good in this that's film. That's true. So maybe the very end. Yeah. Uh, and to your point, though, they do a lot of these visual gags and they do it in various ways. Some of them are like a photograph where... I have so much respect for photographers because what they have to do in one picture is tell a complete story. If you're really doing your job as a photographer, I think you're, you're telling a complete story in just one photo, one frame. And that's really hard to do. And they do some of that here, but because it's a camera, you get to add in a movement. And so they do things in contrast and expectation the uh, the gas nozzle that's still in the uh, the car tank, mm-hmm. complete visual gag, right? It's just there for comedic punch, but it's also, well, maybe maybe not just right. Uh, so to start this little segment, like Shakespeare, one of my favorite lines, and I have not read much Shakespeare, so don't take this as a pretentious West quoting. You know, I've read a lot of Shakespeare. The the bard. It's not pretentious. Well, it's not, but. If anyone out there were to think it is, I'm not that guy because I don't know Shakespeare. <laughs> okay. But one of the small points I've I've picked up in reading is uh, brevity is the soul of wit. And that's one of the cool things about these visual gags because that gas nozzle is instantly funny and it's also indicative of him, right? Yeah. He's absent-minded. He's not really there yeah. as he's walking into his job and getting chewed out for being late and uh, kind of being checked out with his table, which – Fun fact from the commentary is 
one of the guys, the guy that's uh, kind of giving him uh, shit at the table was one of the investors. Uh, in, in the, the film? In the film, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Pretty cool. <laughs> that was the Kickstarter before there was a Kickstarter. Yeah. You give me enough money, you can be in the film. <laughs> Top tier reward. There you go. <laughs> Here's your $500,000 premiere or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, Very cool. You have all these little visual... Some of these aren't quite what I would call a visual gag. A visual gag. And some of these visual gags are, are just kind of comedic background, I guess. Like in the Vietnamese restaurant, he has these... <laughs> These water boys carrying uh, troughs of water around in their buckets. Like, yeah, over like their shoulders. In, yeah, like we're in, you know, Thailand or something. I don't yeah. know. And, but the harder ones, right, or the, the, the more punchy ones are the shirt and the bathroom. Mm-hmm. That's immediate. You get exactly the joke there. Um, it's just visually funny, even if you don't understand the background. Uh, oh, they made that shirt out of the wallpaper or the whatever. It just looks hilarious because he looks pathetic and he's blending completely in. It's just a really funny joke, just yeah. like the uh, the water faucets turning on as he's walking down yeah. uh, the bathroom line. Or in the doctor's office. Yes, which is such a good – there's two things I love about that, not only the uh, the punchline, but I also love the, the cut there. And, I mean, it's pretty basic for, I'm sure, this editor, but it's something really important because – in the edit, we're watching Largeman look at the wall, and he starts at the bottom, and he moves his head t- towards the top as he's looking at everything. And they cut to the camera already in motion. They didn't just cut and we're at the bottom you know, for half a beat, mm. and then we pan up. Instead, what they're doing is they're using the motion of Largeman's head as he's in mid-look. Sh- mid and cutting on that rhythm to insinuate the rhythm of the next edit. Uh, so it's very fluid and it's very natural. And that's something that helps enunciate the comedic punch, which is when we land at the top, we land there for a half a beat, and then we pan up to see even more rewards and accolades. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just the perfect you know, visual timing that is helped with the editing, but ultimately is it's crafted in the uh, the camera work itself, yeah. uh, because a lot of the camera work, I mean, it's over, it's a little bit all over the place. Uh, they do a lot of standard coverage, right? You have your establishing shot and your wide shot and your medium two shot of both people in the frame, and then you move into your singles, and so they're doing all the basic coverage so that. You can do what you need to do, right? You're sitting outside the clinic, and he's on his motorcycle, and they're having their conversation, and we're moving into the close-ups, uh, the single shots. And then as he talks about his bike, we cut into the the two-shot so that we can see the motorcycle that's being referenced. And so it helps the editor whenever you have that kind of coverage. But they also do a lot of shot-reverse shot so that we're in a we're looking like at the clip at the beginning, right? We're in the store. And we're very separated from that's what a shot reverse shot does. It really separates these two subjects. Wait, which scene? So which scene? when they're in handiworks, uh, talking to or handy world, talking to Carl. Oh yeah. And we're seeing the three of them at first, and it later becomes a, after Mark leaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're we're seeing them, and then we're reversing the angle completely, um, and looking at Carl, and it it's communicating that we're not on the same side as this guy. Like this is awkward for all of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it kind of communicates a little bit of tension in that way. Um, in this case, it's comedic tension uh, because they don't want to be over there. Right. Um, 
so the the shooting is a little little all over the place and i think it's effective though i don't think it's like haphazard sometimes it feels a little haphazard as uh they shred at some points like the the 180 degree rule in that way like shot reverse shot is is a way to do that um to break the 180 rule but it's just not as can you explain what that is real fast yeah so i the, know you have before but sure in this episode uh so the 180 degree rule is the idea of let's say you're you're looking down at a table uh two people are sitting across from each other and we have person a sitting on the north like a compass and person b is sitting on the south um that line running north south is your 180 degree rule line now let's say you want to on the compass go to the east well now that's where your camera is and you're going to point it you know towards the north or you're going to point it towards the south you always want to stay on that east side because if you suddenly jump let's say you're you're shooting the guy on the north side of the table and then you're on the east but then you shoot the person on the south side of the table and you jump to the west well now it's very jumpy because the background is changing and you're disorienting your your audience a little bit and then probably too you might even have them framed up the same way so that whenever you're cutting it they're like pop 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 yeah they're like right on top of each other it's yeah. just visually disruptive which is a technique in and of itself but you better know why you're doing it <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and speaking of that I don't remember where I was going before, but you just reminded me of with that same idea of like trying not to edit people on top of each other at the end. I don't know if it was planned or not, um, but there's this really great dissolve that's happening during Fru Fru. I don't never. Okay. Uh, Fru Fru's song. Fru Fru, Frau Frau. I, I'm, I've heard both. Okay, good. <laughs> I'll be a Fru Fru. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever That's the artist that's playing at the end, by the way. <laughs> yeah, the Let Go song. Uh, which I fell just head over heels for. It's really just Imogen Heap. Yeah, she yeah. is just incredible. Um, whenever they're, that song is playing and they're doing all these dissolves, nobody ever dissolves into another person. It's always, and it's kind of difficult because we start with Zach at the top you know, of the escalator, and I think we dissolve to Natalie Portman at the bottom where he had just left her. And he's on the left side, uh, or on the right side, I forget now. And she's on the other side, and she's on the left side. And then we dissolve to large men running through the airport, and he starts on the right side. And as he's running through, he makes his way to the left side of the screen, which you begin the next dissolve is his buddy, the the, the millionaire guy, is floating in his pool. And then you dissolve to Mark, who's sitting on the left side of the screen, which dissolves to his dad sitting a uh, little more right center and which ultimately dissolves into the airplane scene. And none of these dissolves that takes largely either one of two things. You're either really lucky shooting it, which I doubt, um, or you just have an editor who's aware of the pacing needs to fit this. And we're going to back our way into making sure we don't trip ourselves up mm-hmm. um, because dissolves can be a very emotional uh, way to engage the audience. You know, if you're doing it right, which obviously they are, just a ton of freaking talent that's happening here. So you also mentioned something about the uh, the party scene that the camera itself has a had a switch this on is, it. So yeah. they shot this in film with film, right? 
right? And you said, so in the, there's a scene, there's a, a, a party scene where Largeman takes some drugs and, uh, and so he's just sitting there and all of a sudden everything speeds up around him, but he's just sitting there and then it slows down. And you're saying that there was a switch on the camera. That's what he was saying. And I remember Googling it a while back and getting the impression that, that, it, that it was true. I haven't re double checked, you know, the camera they shot on and that model, yada, yada. But if you're going to do that, because that's, that's really hard. If you're, if you're ramping speed live like that, as it's rolling through the camera, that's changing your exposure. And I don't know how in 2003 or 2004, when they were shooting this, how you do that on the fly like that. I mean, if you're going to do that, then I'm assuming you're operating the aperture live too. So that when the exposure changes suddenly, instead of, you know, 48 frames a second, you're, you're jumping to 60 or 120, uh, that suddenly needs a lot more light. So you open it wide open. I don't know. My, I don't know if he was just making a joke about it or if he just didn't understand what was really happening. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because maybe they weren't doing a live. Maybe it was just, okay, and cut. We're going to switch to slow-mo here. Because that's a lot of film that's running through the camera. If you're going to shoot you know, 60 frames a second even, then that means you're going like, um, from what, 40 frames? From 48 frames a second. Sorry, my math. Or 24, 24 frames. 24. It's like over double. Yes, it's over 60% faster. Yeah. Thank you. All yeah. the math of it. I'm used yeah. to the other side right. of slowing it down again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of film. Yeah. Like in a one film can, a standard can is going to give you about 11 minutes worth. Wow. And if you're running that 60% faster, I mean, yeah. it's you know just four or five minutes. Dude, yeah. And at which case, you know, you might instead of having a, you know, 2000 foot can, maybe you, you go for an even longer can They're, They might make 4000 foot canisters so that you can, you can do that. Um, or magazines, I should call them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that just adds a whole other layer of complexity, I think. But either way, I mean, perfect rhythmic, you know, way to, to break it up and, I can imagine him writing the, the the script and saying, "We're going to have all these music breaks tied in, yeah, so that I'm giving something emotional and visually interesting." Because a part of that scene too is coming out of that slow motion. There's this beautiful camera move that's subtle, it's comedic, it's the pan from that montage to they pan right to to largemen as the audience is or the 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 group is yelling large to get his attention and that's a bit of a visual gag too that i don't think he was in on i think the camera operator just said this is what i'm going to do because that makes sense to me and you just pan right into the dialogue and it plays absolutely to perfection yeah because you're communicating how out of it he is you're painting from nothing (laughs) to him yeah no it was fantastic i felt like i was like in the party yeah right yeah Yeah. it's that's great visual filmmaking and so yeah you have this interesting collection of standard coverage with these shot reverse shots to kind of uh punch in some of these comedic moments right you start uh, you you go into Sam's house that later that night and or the next night, and you're watching them, and they're just kind of staring at something. You hear you know some scratching, and then you reverse shot to the dog, and 
He's yeah, scratching himself. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah, whatever he's playing with there. Yeah. And so there's just a lot of these really great uh, visual bits that I wonder how much they sat down beforehand to talk about and how much was just going with the flow. Because that's good directing, too. That dog, I don't think they knew beforehand that dog was... That wasn't planned. Yeah, and that's kind of also what I meant about the writing, like... You know, it's very organic, it seems. And I would imagine that, and I'm just spitballing and guessing, that probably on set there was a lot of, well, why don't we try this? Or let's try that. Or, wow, we need to catch that right now, you know, or whatever. Totally. Because you know what? My favorite scene. (laughs) This is the third favorite scene. Yep. (laughs) So, is whenever they're at the fireplace. And she says, I can tap dance. You want to see me tap dance? Yeah. That came out of, they had been on set, you know, for a couple of weeks and between takes or between setups, Natalie Portman would just kind of tap dance around to kill, till, kill time. And he was like, really? Hey, would you mind like doing that on camera? And she's like, she was really hesitant. Like he talked her into it and, um, she does it. I think they only did like, a couple takes like they did that close up and or the medium and then they did the wide and the camera operator was just on the money because he had to fix the frame when she stands up that changes the composition yeah and you can see the camera move there and he was just ready to catch whatever comes next but that was not in the script that's great i love it that's so awesome that's such a great moment too Beautiful. she doesn't have any shoes on and it's just it's like it's so endearing right You're interesting like, Oh man. And so that's a part of great directing is knowing how to incorporate interesting moments like that, that you're seeing around the set Yeah, because it could easily go awry, (laughs) but he made an excellent film that you have to give him so much credit because he assembled a team ultimately, right? He wrote the scripture and maybe he could have done more writing on it beforehand to save more headaches and to help enunciate certain moments. But ultimately he also surrounded himself with the right people and was open to change. And that's a hallmark of a excellent collaborator and someone that you would always want to work with, you know, no matter what. Yeah. It seemed like a fun set to be on. Right. Yeah. God. I mean, Peter Sarsgaard just sounds like a freaking, I was crazy about him too. After watching this, I started making sure I watched everything that he was in. Yeah. He was a huge influence on me. Um, wanted to be an actor for sure. Like him, Natalie Portman and Kenny, the cop, I think were like the three people, uh, Gene smart and endowed. So basically everybody, yeah. But. <laughs> yeah like, wait a minute. That's the whole cast. <laughs> and, but, uh. but watching them, like I, was immediately like, what other Sarsgaard movies are coming out or out right now? So I went to watch like The Skeleton Key, which he oh, was in. You know, yeah. he was a big, big character in there. And I was just soaking it up. I was like, what have I been missing? Why haven't I been appreciating uh, acting as much as I should have been? And I learned so much about the value of your actors by watching this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's everything. And the, the casting in this is incredible freaking incredible i mean anything natalie portman touches is gold god can you say that (laughs) yeah i mean i think she will go down as kind of 
not kind of, she's basically Meryl Streep to us, which Meryl Streep has been to, I mean, the film world. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. Not just agree. a generation, right? I mean, look uh, look at her more serio- serious films, uh, like... Um, Black Swan or I was just that, I lost it, yeah, Black Swan. <laughs> um, but no, the more recent one, Jackie. Jackie, gosh, oh, man. she's so good. She just has this way of tapping into what that character really is you know not just on the page but um but then it it always never feels like you lose her either like it feels like not that i know her she hasn't called me at home um but uh it just seems like there is a running theme in all of her characters that she exists and uh even if it's just you know minimal minute it might be just because she's always cute yeah. She ha- does not have the ability to not right. be cute. She's always going to be beautiful. And so that is, um, and so that's the running theme in all of her characters, but it, there's, it, it's just, it's always a little bit deeper. You know? Yeah. And I've had acting coaches say before that you're always going to be you no matter what you're doing. And so it's only natural and logical to insert a little piece of yourself into every, everything that you do because, maybe that's the best way to ground it. Even if you're playing someone that I would never be, you know, a serial killer. Well, okay. Uh, but there's something in that person because he's a human that you can connect to that you can relate with. And so find that one little thing and let that be your bridge to help mm-hmm. cover that gap. Yeah. And also to find your way back when you're done. Yeah. You God, know what I mean? So true. Uh, Heath Ledger. Yeah, I have a really difficult time with what they call substitution. I think Uta Hagen is really big on this. Uh, if you've ever read one of her, you know, her books or studied her teachings, um, and it's just a method of finding. So if I was playing largement, I might tap into some of the things in my own life that have depressed me, that have given me depression, and then use that to be depressed on screen, you know. That for me, that's super dangerous. I can't do that because the times that I've done that, it's it can spiral me for you know, hopefully only the rest of that day, but it might hurt me for the next week or two mm-hmm. as I'm pulling myself back out. And so, there's other things that you can use. Obviously, just empathy is a big one as an actor. I hope yeah. we have, um, but also uh, the physicality. I think Natalie Portman does a great job of physically understanding her character and the mannerisms of her character and uh, posture and that kind of thing as a study of what not to do. Um, I remember, and this has stuck with me because I came back to Austin having seen this film and I was really interested in acting at the time and started doing uh, analysis of performances. And I remember watching, uh, I think it's bamboozled uh, Spike Lee film with Damon Wayans and Damon Wayans is playing this character who's like a, an executive or, you know, this proper guy, but his posture completely betrays it. Like he's still walking like, you know, he just walked off the street, you know, and he's got his shoulders hunched and he's got a little bit of a, a swagger in his step. And I'm like, you're the way you're speaking with this, you know, ultra proper accent it's completely betrayed by your, your posture and your physicality. Um, and that's one small thing I think she does really, really well is like to understand her character's background and 
why does she move the way she moves? Okay, let me own that. And that just kind of injects you into character. I know Humphrey Bogart was, would say, if you can nail the character's walk, you got it, which is interesting. I don't interesting. know that Humphrey had a whole lot of variety in this. Yeah, right. <laughs> he had one walk. Yeah. All his characters had that the one walk. <laughs> totally. He nailed them. Uh, so I'm in love with this film. I, you can't tell, and I could easily go on and on. But yeah. I think the three things that make this film great, the performances, which come back to the casting, the music, freak, yeah, man. Yeah, man. Killed it. The editing. I mean, if you only own one soundtrack to a movie, can you think of a better one? Nope. I mean, this, it's, it's just perfect. Every song bleeds into the next one, uh, seamlessly and, and you, and emotively like you, that I know is not a word, but you can just, you can feel it from one song to the one track to the next. You can feel the progression of the film. And of yourself too. It's just it. You kind of grow until until you get to let go, and it's just the perfect song to end. And then pulling back the the whole pullback of of at the end of the film uh-huh. as they kiss and they pull back as the song kicks in because it, it, you kind of hear it starting to come in and they're looking at each other and they have that that fast cut you were mentioning mm-hmm. earlier, and then they and then it when it kicks into the chorus and it, the camera pulls back to reveal they're the only people in the, in the airport. It just, I got goosebumps yeah. it, and I don't know if it's because it's really that good or if it's because the nostalgia that I hold to the film. Um, I know I either way that it's moment. that good, you know? I, absolutely. I remember feeling it in that moment whenever I saw it and I was just like, no, more yeah yeah <laughs> which is perfect what is what he wanted yep. one thing that now that i'm thinking about that pullback that i love about it is that it's not completely steady Mm-mm. it's yeah. it, you can tell that they're on like a cart or something <laughs> and they're just okay go you know and and the guy's holding the camera on his shoulder or something it's not perfect yeah which is because yeah to your point it's a wide shot you can see the floor which means you can't lay a dolly track down right and so they're probably on some uh i always butcher the names of it but on a a, a manual dolly basically yeah. where the cameraman sits in the seat and yeah yeah but even in 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 like really high-end one you know dollies like or roller whatever you want to call it like that um it's not a chapman is it a chapman yes yes thank you it's a chapman even even the chapmans are really steady because you can hook the camera up to them and they can be really super steady i really don't think that they use that maybe they ran out of money and it was just you know yeah the, the guy the guy's on a on a on a a golf cart or something. And then too, I mean, they're, they're in an airport. There's maybe a limited time to get everything that you need out of that airport. Yeah. Or maybe it was intentional. Maybe because, uh, the ending is kind of messy. Yeah. You want to float away, you you know? And so the ending, the, the, the camera work needs to be messy too, at least at the end, the very end. Yeah. It just is just so perfect. Um, and if it was any other song, it wouldn't be. And you know what's amazing about that shot is they have a bogey. I think a PA missed, missed, uh, missed a bogey. This guy walks in the very back. He's like, yeah. a, uh, I don't know what you call him, but he's taking luggage from across the airport. And 
on that edit when they smash cut out of there, his door, the door opens, uh, that guy in the background, the door opens and it lets in this light and the light just happens to perfectly be centered on them in the, in the background. And so it's like uh-huh. it frames them with that light of the door opening. All right, I'm going to go watch it again. Complete accident. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> I love stuff like that. It's so good. So freaking good. So go, basically what we're saying is go buy the soundtrack. Yes. Definitely. I'm definitely saying that too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes, the film is amazing, but uh, I think it's amazing, I mean, 50% because of the music. Such a good idea. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> Tissue? <laughs> what are you recommending uh, this week uh let's see oh oh yeah i i had to go back through and look to see what we had recommended uh because oh, i know yeah. you made the list to make sure that we hadn't recommended this and we haven't um but we have talked about it Ooh. uh so this week i want to recommend fight club nice uh it's is such a great movie and and if you haven't seen it i mean climb out from under your rock it's like everybody's seen fight club but but go watch it again even if you've seen it because i mean the acting is unbelievable the idea the concept behind the whole the whole movie is amazing um uh, the production is incredible the the camera work and the directing fincher I, I I mean, I have no words. It's so, so good. There's not, and it doesn't waste any time. Mm-hmm. It just kicks you in the teeth from beginning to end the whole time. And it's a, it's almost like, like a, a perfectly assembled film. You know, I'm not saying it's the, the best camera work. I'm not saying it's the best. Act. I'm saying assemble assembly wise, from beginning to end, I'm not like, I don't think, man, I would cut out two minutes there. I would cut out that, or I would, I mean, they should really have done, I don't have anything. I just, that's a really interesting crazy. point. Um, I know for a while, Indiana Jones and the, uh, and the lost Ark oh, yeah. was kind of a landmark film for that roller coaster ride. And I don't know how long fight club is, but I can imagine it's two hours, maybe plus. Yeah. And in my head, I'm like, what do we spend all that time doing? Yeah. But then like, like you said, you watch it, you watch it and you're like, Oh yeah. 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 It's all a setup. It's all a setup. And if you take one piece, like a domino setup of dominoes, you take one domino out and it ruins everything after it. Yeah. You know, like every little thing is really, really important, especially at the end when you start thinking back. So, you could watch this movie five, ten times and see something else yeah. each time, like little inserting little frames of things. And yeah. it's, oh, it's just so good. <laughs> uh, yeah. Awesome. We should do that one sometime. Yes. Uh, so I'm going to recommend The Wackness. If you've never I seen it. I haven't seen it. I like it as a, you know, I like to try to connect my recommendations with the film that we're covering. And in this case, the, the connecting dot is that it's got an amazing soundtrack. This is like mid nineties. This is like 95 hip hop. And Ooh, the other, so that would be the other connection would be method man is also in the whackness. Ah, there you go. And he kills it too. He's still like, he's an impressive actor. The more I think about it. Yeah. And he's, I want to say he's in the deuce as well on HBO. 
He's just all over the place. Yeah. Um, but I would say go watch the Wackness. If you, you've probably never heard of it, this is one of those little gems that I like to recommend for people who enjoy dramas. And even if you only like hip hop a little, then you'll certainly appreciate it. And it's just a really good story. It's uh, okay. Ben Kingsley doing a role you've never seen him doing. Well worth it. Kingsley, and, nice. Yeah. There's a lot that's great about it. And, Maybe down the line we'll cover it because I really do love that film. Um, I got to go watch it. Yes. So what are we going to do next week? We are going to do Chef, Jean Favreau's yes. Chef. It's so, going to be interesting. Yeah, that is. That is. Uh, we may have differing opinions on this film. Yeah, I think so. Finally. Finally. <laughs> After, what is this, 24th episode? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we might. I've seen it once before, but I do need to watch it again. Um, so, so yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Don't forget. You can subscribe and review us on iTunes. If you have a moment, you'll have to, and if you want to review us, you actually have to run a search in iTunes podcast. Why do they do that? Because they're jerks. iTunes is the single most amazing piece of software ever made. I'm not going to go where I was originally going to go with that. (laughs) 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 And you can, uh, if you want to comment on this episode, you can do so with all the Garden State spoilers in the world by going to the pestlepodcast.com slash Garden State. I will try to – no, I won't try. I will just go ahead and incorporate some some of these visual elements that I was talking about in the episode so that you can see a reverse shot, reverse shot, and you can see um, some examples of – the things we've been discussing and maybe a few things more to keep it interesting. Awesome. Uh, okay. So we're going to leave you with the quote of the day. This one's from Ernest Hemingway. There's nothing to writing. All you do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed. I love that. And I think it kind of typifies what Zach Braff was doing on one level. Right. And he just kind of sat down and all the things that were important to him that were emotional for him. He laid it out. And I think he gets a little flack from, some more purist cinephiles because there's elements that he's borrowing from and Cameron Crowe films and reliant too much on music or what have you. But at the, at the end of it, like these are all very human things and I relate, I mean, Ernest Hemingway is my favorite writer. And so I relate to this a lot. Like the things that I feel are the things I want to write about because maybe someone else feels these things. And that's ultimately what, Zach Braff hit a chord on is he was feeling a little aimless in his twenties. He didn't know what he was doing with his life and maybe he didn't feel like he had that sense of home. And so he just wrote that story, even though it's messy and it's, you know, not the most perfectly written thing ever. He just sat down at his, you know, keyboard and he bled all over it, you know, metaphorically speaking. And I love that. Yeah. I think we can all do that on some level, whether it's writing lyrics um, or writing a story, just sit down and you don't know who's going to connect to what you have to say. Every artist is a cannibal. Every poet is a thief. All steal their inspiration and sing about their grief. It's Bono. Damn. Yep. It's saying, I mean, we all take from someone or something you can't help it. You're influenced by that. He's influenced by Cameron Crowe. His stuff is going to see have elements of Cameron Crowe in it. He loves music. It's a huge part of his life. He's going to incorporate that, incorporate that into a film. 
I don't fault him for any of that, for seeming like that. Now, if you're going to rip someone off completely, that's a different story. But I don't see that in this yeah, film. Same here. I see, I see a dude who just won, wanted to make a film and that meant something to him. And so he did it. How do you not identify with that, especially as a filmmaker? Right. Right? Yep. Jeez. Great quote, man. I love it. It's awesome. Good, Sweet. Good Bono pool off the top of your head. <laughs> it's not off the top of my head. That's like, I, I've I've had, I have that, I think about it almost every single day. <laughs> oh my God. It's it's like, I mean, it's uh, it's on their Octung Baby record, it, The Fly. Just, um, it's amazing. Yeah. Anything that guy does is incredible, but lines like that are, you know, if you listen to, I, I used to always listen to music. You can't now because lyrics suck now, <laughs> yeah. but for the lyric, for the, the one line that I've heard a hundred times, but said in a, in a, a new way. And that's one of them, you know, one of the three dozen that Bono has, but that are life-changing that really sum up one little moment uh, or one, one thought that's in just one little line. And, um, uh, I mean, this, you know, this Ernest Hemingway quote is just like that too. I mean, if you don't, if you don't sit down and bleed, it's noticeable and it's, Mm. and it seems, that's when it seems fake. That's when it seems contrived. That's when it seems drawn out that's when it seems you know less than real you know but anyway good quote hell yeah all right guys well we're gonna call it uh thank you for joining us again please go please go to the uh to the podcast and write a review tell us what you want us to to review or to talk about even if it's not a movie uh it could be a book it could be a tv show it could be you know whatever anything uh, and uh, who knows, maybe we will. But until then, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies. Mm-hmm.